Today is our final Sunday to celebrate acts of generosity. Our scripture reading comes from a sermon that was delivered by Peter, who reflects on how God is first acting through Jesus and then through the early church. So listen for the good news in Peter's sermon. From Acts 10. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every people, anyone who fears him and practices righteousness is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to those who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. May God bless this reading to our understanding. Over the past four weeks, we have been thinking about acts of generosity. Last week, Dr. Graves talked about those Christians in the first church who got organized. They organized themselves in the first church for the purpose of distributing food to the widows. And Mike reminded us that it was not just an organizational mechanism, but a way that they gave of themselves, a way that they showed that they deeply cared about one another. In the first weeks of this series on generosity, I talked about how church folk like us offer friendship along the lines of not just friends that we know who are like us, but also friendship between the haves and the have-nots, between the rich and the poor. And we looked at some examples of those first apostles in the, books of, in the book of Acts and how those early leaders pooled their financial resources so that no one within the church community had any need. And we recalled the ways that this church cares for the hungry, the houseless, both here in Kansas City and around the globe. Every week, folks gather here to knit blankets and make hospice supplies. We make taco salad for 200 and chicken tetrazzini for 800 every month so that our hungry neighbors have nourishing food. We bake cookies for every Sunday morning and we mentor the youth in our youth group. Acts of generosity, if you don't see that in the church, then the church has lost its way. But today, we arrive at a turning point in the book of Acts. Chapter 10 is the longest story in the book of Acts. Our scripture lesson, the one I just read, is from the conclusion of this long chapter. But in order for this passage to have any wow factor, we would have to first know the story 
that is behind the conclusion. The story has two main characters, Cornelius and Peter. The two men could not be more opposite. Cornelius lives over here in Caesarea. Peter is over here in Joppa. Cornelius is a Gentile. Peter is a dedicated Jewish leader. The two of them are forbidden by religious and social custom to come together to dine at the same table or to circulate in the same social circles. Cornelius over here is a Roman military officer occupying land that does not belong to him. Peter knows the persecution that his people have faced from those officers like Cornelius. Neither of these men has any interest in one another. But Cornelius has a vision. An angel of God comes to Cornelius at three o'clock and tells him, send for Peter to come and visit you. Cornelius wakes up from this dream. He sends messengers to Joppa to find Peter. And as they are on their way to Joppa to Peter's house, Peter goes up on the flat roof to pray. And while he's there praying, he has a vision. And the vision is of God lowering a sheet, and the sheet is filled with different kinds of unclean animals. Well, it's a bizarre and baffling vision, and Peter isn't sure what to make of it. But while he's musing about all of this, the visitors from Cornelius's house arrive, and Peter agrees to go with them to see Cornelius. All of a the sudden, these two men from opposite religious, social, and cultural circles are thrown together, and it doesn't seem to make sense to either one of them. Now, I know that's a lot of history for me to throw at you, so let me tell it to you with a 20th century story. Up in the mountains of eastern Tennessee sits a little town called Oak Ridge. Fred Craddock was a young man studying to become a minister when he served the Oak Ridge Church as a little part-time way to make some money and practice his preaching. Atomic energy was expanding rapidly at that time, and folks were moving into the areas around Oak Ridge so quickly that there was not enough housing for all of them, and so they set up tents and they brought in trailers so that they could earn a few bucks in this booming business. These new folks, these out-of-towners, they wore hard hats and rugged boots, and they hung their laundry out on the fence to dry. Fred's little church in Oak Ridge was a nice white frame building, and the wonderful people in that church were more aristocratic than they were country folk. They were the types who wore suits to work and carried briefcases. And Fred approached the wonderful members of his church with an idea. He said, let's invite these out-of-towners to come to our church. And the board chair told Fred, no. Why not, asked Fred. They're just living right down the road. It's part of our mission. Surely they need spiritual support, the good news of Jesus. No, boomed the board chair. That's a bad idea. Why, said Fred. Well, because 
they just wouldn't fit in. And so the topic made it to the church board meeting, and one of the board members proposed a recommendation in the form of a formal resolution. It read, members will be admitted to this church from families who own property in this county. The vote was unanimous. Everyone was for it except Fred, and he was reminded that he was not given a vote. Years later, Fred became a professor at Emory, where he was part of the seminary there, and it was not that far of a drive up to the mountains of eastern Tennessee. And so he invited his wife, Nettie, to go on a little tour with him through the mountains so that he could show her one of his early failures in the ministry. They drove through the mountains. It was still lovely up there with the pine trees. And finally, they found that white wooden church building. The parking lot was packed. There were trucks and cars everywhere. You could hardly even find a parking place. And there was a great big sign out front that said, barbecue, all you can eat, ribs, chicken, beef, pork. And Fred and his wife, Nettie, were kind of hungry, so they decided they would go on in. And they found there in what was now a restaurant, the oil lamps that had been in the church were still beautifully there on the walls. And the beautifully wood-carved pews had been removed, and they brought in aluminum and plastic tables and chairs. And the place was full of people speaking every language of every color, of every nationality, of every religion, of different sexual orientations and gender identities. And Fred turned to his wife, Nettie, and said, well, it's a good thing this is not a church anymore, because if it was, these folks would not be welcome here. They wouldn't fit in. So the problem, you see, with Peter and Cornelius is that both of them know that they do not fit in in one another's social circles. Awkward at best, but illegal in the minds of many. They don't belong to each other. But Peter travers, travels over to Cornelius's home, and Cornelius, who is a Roman soldier, falls down at Peter's feet. And Peter says, don't bow down before me, I'm just a man. And the two join together to form one community. These two men who previously had no interest in each other are somehow thrown together because God gave each of them a vision to move the boundary of who is included. And that's when Peter gives the sermon that we heard in the text this morning. And the opening words of Peter's sermon are words that he himself is just now learning. God shows no partiality. God doesn't play favorites. This is a massive pivot point, not only in the book of Acts, but in the entire Christian story. Instead of the Christian community consisting of a small band of Jewish folks who loved that man named Jesus, the Christian community becomes inclusive of everyone from any place, God shakes things up. God acts. God loves those people who we all know just won't fit in. 
The Christian story becomes a story of love for all people, not because Peter is open-minded or Cornelius is big-hearted. Rather, it is because God acts. God sends visions. God inspires. God compels. God brings folks together so that they can see that the love in Jesus is the love that includes every single person on the planet. And so Peter is bold to preach, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to God. God's generous love is for everyone. God erases the boundaries that separated them and makes them into one body of Christ. Only the generosity of God could perform that kind of miracle. On this Mother's Day, I'm thinking about my friend who told me about the day that his wife became a mother. The day, he said, was Friday the 13th. My friend was sitting in his wife's hospital room, cradling his newborn daughter, marveling at what a gift she was, about how his wife was now a mother. And to everyone's shock and surprise, his wife suddenly couldn't breathe. They called the nurses in, and they quickly learned that she was experiencing a very rare postpartum condition and going into congestive heart failure. The doctor on Friday night on call came into the room and explained to my friend that one of three things would happen. Your wife, the mother of your daughter, she could fully recover, or she could need a heart transplant, or she won't make it. He cradled his daughter he wondered if the price that he would pay for receiving this miraculous gift could be the loss of his wife. A nurse came in the room. She stood over his wife. She didn't touch the IV bag. She didn't administer any meds. She just stood there and left. Later, he learned that this particular nurse was not on their case, but she had heard about it and came into the room to pray. His church that night on Friday the 13th, they were wrapping up a Friday night social event and they heard what was happening and they stayed for another hour or two and began praying for his wife that she might make it. His parents' church gathered in another city, in another state, and they began to pray. And one friend in the church dropped everything and came and spent the night with him there in the hospital, guiding him through every step. And his wife fully recovered it could have gone either way. Who is to say what happened that night? But what my friend remembers is that he felt the generosity of God's love pulsing through the veins of his friends at church and even through strangers on the hospital staff. He felt that God was acting through their generous love, carrying him through the most horrific situation. And as my friend told me the story, I began reflecting on all the ways that I have received God's generous love, God's generous grace. I remembered the years when my son went through what I call those emotionally rugged teenage years. 
And I remember that his faith mentor, the one assigned to him here at the church in the sixth grade, all throughout high school, kept sending him notes of encouragement, quotes from famous people about finding courage and honesty and truth and kindness and acting as a man of character. And my son, who couldn't keep up with his own car keys or socks, carefully saved every single one of those notes in a safe place in his top dresser drawer. I remembered when my own home church in Texas encouraged me to pursue my own calling, even when we all knew that my parents thought this was the dumbest idea their daughter had ever had. I remember standing in the kitchen one day with my son, I think he was about seventh grade, and he said to me, Mom, I'm glad you make me go to church. And I fell down on the floor. And when I got back up, I said, oh? And he said, yeah, I know I complain about it a lot. But I realized recently that some of my friends at school have nothing, nothing to believe in. And besides, the youth minister really is cool. And I remember the few terrifying moments when my family faced life-threatening illnesses and the church showed up with food on the doorstep and cards in the mail. When this church promises to help you love your child in ways beyond your reach, as we just did at these baby dedications, this church follows through. They keep their promises. God is the generous actor who lavishes us with love beyond any real or imagined boundaries. We can try to act with generosity, but the real actor is God. Maybe the most that you can do, maybe the best that all of us can do with the time and the talent and the treasure that we have been given is to simply bear witness to God's extravagant love, to point to the one whose love knows no boundaries. We ourselves will always wonder if those people over there really would feel comfortable here, if they would really fit in, but God acts differently. Years ago, we had a contemporary worship service. It was on Sunday nights in the chapel, very casual. We had a band. There was a family that began to visit the church. They were members of one of those churches that believes that if you're not a member of their church, you're going to burn in hell. But they had decided that they would look around and maybe visit some other churches, and they came to our church, and they had been there for several weeks. But when the time came for communion, they never took communion, and I knew why. Because they believed that our communion wasn't the real deal. You know, it was just bread and some juice. It wasn't the holy gift of God. And then came the Sunday when I saw them stand up, from the back row, and they came forward down the center aisle as we did each Sunday night to take communion. And the mother came, and the father came, and the eldest brother came, and the middle child came, and then the youngest one came. I think he might have been about six. And when he got to the bread, he just stood there and froze. He didn't 
take a piece. This was long before COVID, and at that time there was a whole loaf there, and he was supposed to reach up and take the bread with one hand and break off a piece with the other, but he just stood there, and I thought, well, maybe he thinks it's not the real thing. And then I realized his problem. He had gum in his mouth. <laughs> and he wasn't about to put that bread in his mouth with the gum there. And so he did a smart thing. He took the gum out of his mouth and held it in his hand. But then he couldn't figure out how to grab the bread with the gum in his hand. And I was holding the loaf in one hand and the cup in the other, and so I couldn't figure out how, how to help him either, and he just stood there until he went. <laughs> and that's when I knew that he had tasted the boundless love of God. How will we each respond when we taste God's act of boundless, generous love?